When you hear the words gender-affirming care, what comes to mind? It's likely a mix of coordinated, highly publicized misinformation, but you're probably also going to have pushback from the medical community and also the trans community and trans activists. Most people are kind of unfamiliar with the vocabulary around gender identity. There's a widespread change in the understanding of gender, in sexuality, and also there's a much larger portion of the public that is talking about falling in between the traditional binaries of male and female and heterosexual and homosexual. Back in June of 2015, I happened to be in New York City when the Supreme Court decision Obergefell versus Hodges came out. And I got to tell you, pride was incredible in New York City at the time. The Empire State Building was bathed in rainbow light. Everybody out in the streets were celebrating the fact that the Supreme Court said that marriage is a fundamental right that's guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, making statewide bans on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. But since then, the anti-LGBTQ movement, which is headquartered in the political right, has pushed back hard. There's a well-funded and coordinated legal attack happening right now. The targets of these attacks have shifted from marriage equality to trans bathroom access, to trans sports participation. And most recently, there's been attacks on transgender youths and their bodies, with an increasing criminalization of trans medicine. I think that we need to start reframing how we think about women's rights or feminist movements and trans rights as like a gender justice movement. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about how the legal system does not always work for us. I'm Mary Whiteside. Joining me today to discuss the history and the state of trans medicine is Professor and Dr. Chef Schuster, a sociologist at Michigan State University who studies the intersection of sexual and gender minority experience and health. They wrote the book, Trans Medicine, The Emergence and Practice of Treating Gender. Steph, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be uh, discussing this, especially in June, you know, during Pride. I think it is extremely important that we keep pushing forward in advancing the rights of the whole LGBTQ community, but especially to be trans allies as much as we possibly can. I, am, I have to identify only as an ally, and I want to I do my part. It's going to get a little dark and negative as we talk about this pushback, but Overall, how do you think the general public is in their acceptance of LGBTQ people and issues now as kind of compared to like, say, where we were in like the 50s? <laughs> oh, I, I think that there, have, there has been phenomenal change over the last, uh, what, 75 years. I mean, even back in the 1950s, I think that most people didn't really have a firm understanding of transgender people, what that meant, you know, it, like terminology was just coming out. Um, but even in the last couple of years, I think we've seen a uh, much wider acceptance from the general public, uh, especially around trans issues. And I think in the last 10 years, certainly around lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer issues. 
Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, really, I you know, my own personal evolution, heterosexuality, homosexuality, you, you kind of get like it's just the binary is simple. But the non-binary and, you know, all of this kind of middle gray area, I think has really expanded, you know, in the past, oh, I don't even know, pretty recently. I, I just read a case from 2018. Sadly, it was a murder case with of a a man, and this is white suburban man who liked having sex with uh, black men at hotels. And the one of the the suspects, he ha also had a, a female partner and a daughter. And the court was like, well, maybe he was lying about where he was because he's not an out gay man. And it was like, well, but maybe he's not an out gay man. Maybe he's a bisexual. Maybe he's not an out bisexual man. But that that idea of bisexuality was just like, in 2018, the court couldn't even conceive of that. So I think that, that that's had a huge uh, expansion. And, and, you know, if you look at I, the young people that I know in, you know, in my life, you know, there's a lot more people that are identifying as bisexual, coming out as bisexual, and all different varieties. Mm -hmm. I, I know that the right's try, trying really hard to put the cork back in the bottle on this, but I, that's going to be hard, I think, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like uh, about 15 years ago, it seemed like a lot of people were embracing the term queer as a way to not, you know, gender themselves or their partners. And so it's interesting if, if what you're noticing right now is that bisexual is kind of coming into more people's awareness and more people are embracing that as their identity. Um, I don't know, is, is it in the same way, though, that uh, like people are trying to kind of get around the gendering of their either their sexuality or their partners, or just do you think it's more of like a embrace, like public embracing of bisexual identity? I think it's a public embracing of bisexuality because I think you can have bisexual. I think that those those two things can be very separate. You can have you know someone who is cis and bi, and you can have someone who is you know more trans or bi or non-binary and bi. And so I think they're, they're, they're different things, but I don't know if the, the public necessarily sees it all that way. I mean, I think, but that's how I see it. And that's how it seems to be portrayed, you know, in, in just viewing like the people that I know, it's, it's sort of like a separate thing. Actually, typically it is people that are cis, okay. whether it's, so it's, that's typically what I'm seeing. As, as just kind of an accept, yeah, as a broader acceptance of bisexuality. But there's definitely, definitely here in Los Angeles, you know, a broader acceptance of this broader spectrum of gender as well. I think I have to remember that everybody, all listeners don't live in those kind of places, you know, where, where we, they don't have so many people around. So they're not necessarily going to have the same level of exposure. And that's okay. You know, we can expose them by through our discussions. So that kind of leads me to what I wanted to say is like, can we just have a little bit of a vocabulary lesson uh, so that we know that, you know, so that everybody can kind of be on the same page as the term of the terms that we're using. So I started um, talking about gender affirming care. And can you kind of talk a little bit about what the definition of that is and who would seek that out? Yeah. So when I offer definitions, I try to be as open as possible to, you know, in, embrace as many different people who might fall within different kinds of terms. But as far as gender affirming care, I think that when 
most folks use that, what they're referring to is healthcare that is offered in a way that is affirming a trans or non-binary person's identity. And so for some people that might involve things like hormones, for others it might be surgical interventions. For some it really just means when you show up to the doctor as a trans or non-binary person, that the healthcare you receive is affirming of your identity, even if it might not have anything to do with like uh, any kind of physical transition. Mm-hmm. You know, in Florida, there's there's laws coming down. You know, where they say that if a medical provider is doesn't want to treat somebody, they don't have to treat them. And from what I know, that that has fallen heavily on the trans community of being denied medical care. So. You know, I think that's really kind of an important thing to think about as we go forward on this. Now, people might also not know necessarily what we mean by non-binary and gender fluid. Is there a difference? Is there not? You know, are there distinctions? I think, again, it's terms are hard and they're constantly changing. And it's one of the exciting, thrilling, lovely things about being someone who, you know, thinks about and teaches gender. Um, Sure. I think right now, most people who use the term non-binary are referring to people whose gender identity is not in those binaries of either woman or man, but somewhere um, outside of those two categories. And I've noticed recently that non-binary has kind of become for some people, almost like a, an umbrella term to describe any of the possibilities for people whose gender is not uh, man or woman. So that could be gender fluid, gender queer, agender, uh, gen- you know, like, so there's a lot of different possibilities. Mm-hmm. But it really, it's, it's one of those tricky terms because it depends on who you speak to. Like some people are firm about their identity is non-binary and others use it more as kind of like a catch-all category. So, Honestly, if we're, if we're really honest, it's not like we didn't know about things. You just call people a tomboy or they call somebody a sissy or androgynous. There was a, a recognition that there was difference in people and then there were these terms that weren't necessarily flattering. You know, the, the intent behind them weren't, weren't really flattering or, or inclusive. But, you know, so this kind of notion that this is a new thing or because there's more acceptance that therefore there's more of it in the society, really, if we think about it, that's not true. It was just discussed differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we can, you know, look historically and think about all of the different variation that has existed and it changes over time, um, but there has been gender variation. So... Yeah. yeah. And I was looking in research for this, that there's about 21% of the nations criminalize homosexuality. And that's about 71 million LGBTQ people living in places where it's criminalized. And there was six UN states where homosexuality is punishable by death based on kind of the Muslim Sharia law. And then Uganda just passed a law. And that's been this push from evangelical missionaries coming out of the U.S. You know, we want to be aware of this. You know, it's a nice little test case for them in Uganda to then bring something like that back here. We want to look at what's going on in other places as either we don't want that or that's great, we should, we should bring that over here. And then there's other parts of the world where it's never been criminalized. 
it's not like it's this thing where everybody, well, yes, if you want to look historically, there have been criminalization laws, you know, all the way back to like the Romans and, and going forward, you know, the Middle Ages were a terrible time. The gay rights movement didn't really get pick up steam till Stonewall in, you know, in the 60s. But then it took till 2003 with Lawrence versus Texas before they decriminalized sodomy under privacy. And then a step further with Obergefell, again, recognizing under the 14th Amendment, the humanity, like that, you know, that these are equal people. So it's been for us a mixed trajectory. You know, we're one of those places where there's been, where, the, where it hasn't been clear, you know, other places like South America and, and parts of Africa and parts of Southeast Asia, it's never been criminalized. So disabuse yourself of some type of a notion that there's a consensus and this is and everybody has agreed that this is wrong that's not historically true so this pushback of laws against trans medicine most recently i think have been getting you know me very concerned about where this is going i'm curious how what the effect has been in the medical community how are the providers how do they feel yeah, so a lot of my work is talking with providers about what it, what their experiences are like working in tra uh, trans medicine and the challenges they experience, the uncertainties they experience, because there's not a lot of training in medicine um, in working explicitly with gender-affirming care. There are a lot of providers who are incredibly concerned, and I think what I have heard mostly from providers is they're concerned partially for and and a lot of the the recent legislation has really been targeting youth so you know there's a lot of providers who are concerned about the health and well-being of youth who might not be able to access the care they need but they're also concerned about their own livelihood and their licenses so if you know for some of the providers who work in these states there are criminal penalties right. for offering care to youth and that's how it's showing up for providers who are already in the fields, but also in speaking with medical students, for those who might be interested in specializing in trans medicine, it kind of sends a chilling message to them that, it, you know, once they get into the field and start practicing, uh, which can be a bit of a vulnerable time for, you know, like a brand new medical provider, this might actually dissuade some of mm -hmm. them um, because they also are incredibly concerned about losing their licenses. Yeah, and you have to marry that with the fact that it's incredibly expensive to become educated to be a doctor, and you don't start making the money to be able to pay your loans until you're practicing. And if you lose your license, it's not like you don't have to pay your loans back. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's assuming you know you don't come from uber rich parents who just paid for your education, or you know, typically you don't get scholarships for everything. So you know, that that also comes into play, a, a very legitimate fear. And I agree. I think that the point of this is a chilling effect. And a lack of care from lawmakers about the effects on children don't register. It's They are unimportant. And the disrespect being shown to trans legislators in different you know, legislative bodies in Montana and around the country, in I think Virginia as well, it's like, it's a very hostile place for those representatives to to be. It's, I think, incredibly brave of them to be putting themselves out there and representing, you know, doing their best to represent their constituents. Unfortunately, you know, in those places, uh, it's particularly brave and they're being they're being silenced, you know, as much as possible, as are their constituents being silenced from that. 
in Texas, the governor didn't go with a law. He went with an executive order instructing the Department of uh, Children's Services to consider a gender-affirming care child abuse. That's in direct conflict with, you know, what is medically recommended. What has been the medical reaction to, you know, this criminalization of the standard of care? I think it depends on what part of the medical establishment we're talking about. I think in general, the gynecology um, associations have been really proactive in creating buffers for their providers, as well as those who are seeking care. And for at least the last five years, have done a lot of groundwork to ensure that gender-affirming care can still proceed in gynecology offices. But I think that, you know, when we look at other areas of medicine, or even just like the profession, like the American Medical Association, they, they really, I mean, they've been quiet. There, there hasn't been a lot of response. I think the last statement the AMA put out was back in, I want to say 2021. It was like a couple paragraph statement that they reaffirmed the rights of trans people to have care. But, you know, most of the activity that it, it started taking off around that time, but it's just, it's just kind of exploded across the country and, you know, different states and counties. And, and so I, I, I think, like, I want to be cautious about, you know, not, mm-hmm. not suggesting that all medical providers are being quiet, but at least when it comes to the professional associations and, and the big one, the American Medical Association, I think that from a trans rights perspective, it's incredibly disappointing. Yeah, I mean, they have the opportunity to lead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I suppose we, we can be grateful they haven't put in somebody who disavows it. But you know, I'd be worried about that. Mm-hmm. But that is their standard of care. So, you know, it, it would they have an opportunity to to be much louder about that. And we would hope that they would take that, uh, you know, as their role and what they should be doing, you know, because trans medicine, there is not a huge population. So you're not going to have these giant studies for their evidence-based care. But that's also very typical amongst rare, in rare medicine, which exists across the spectrum for all different people, for everybody. You know, if you get a rare disease or there's not a huge population of people with with that, then that's going to be the issue. And it's not like you don't then get medical care because it's not something that is highly trained. So, you know, the medical profession of any profession is somewhat well-versed in that type of patient. You know, it's just just put it in this box versus, you know, a rare cancer. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess just to kind of go back a little bit a few minutes ago as you were talking about that if you look at the legislation that's coming out and in the, the, the explanations that are being offered as to why legislators feel like they need to protect trans youth from themselves, often it is about wanting to ensure that, you know, these, these experiments are not happening on children. Um, and I think that the one place where there is a lot of evidence is from the psychological community. Study after study after study consistently shows that blocking access to gender-affirming care is far more consequential and far more harmful for people's health and well-being than the fact that there is not long-term longitudinal studies about the potential health risks of being on X milligrams of hormones. I think 
you're, you're right. Like on one hand, we can look to the American Medical Association. They might have concerns that there is a lack of long-term evidence or follow-up studies about hormones or whatever, but that's not a rationale for blocking access altogether. And we do have countless examples of like medical, and I'm not suggesting that being trans is a medical illness, but you know, we have a lot of examples of medical illnesses and treatments that are offered without necessarily knowing why it might be that X medicine works to counter the effects of whatever illness or disease that might be new. But again, like I always go right back to the psychological studies. They always, for at least 20 years now, these studies have just been mounting evidence that blocking trans people from accessing the care that they decide that they need for themselves and their bodies is incredibly harmful and is part of why we see higher health avoidance, why we see more, you know, like higher suicide ideation, all of the negative consequences of denying people autonomy over their bodies and identities, that matters. So the idea that legislators are protecting trans kids from themselves by blocking care doesn't really logic, like it just doesn't add up. Well, it also doesn't add up because it's in one breath in a different arena. They're all about parents' rights, but not parents who want to support their child in gender-affirming care, not those parents. They want the right for providers to put out things like Invermectin. They're very much picking and choosing what they want based upon their views of it. It's not ideologically consistent with who they want to empower and who they want to disempower, except they want to empower themselves and disempower people that have opposite views or different views from theirs. That's what it seems to me. But, you know, I think getting back to remembering to, to talk about vocabulary, I think that it's a bit confusing to people or just they're, they're just unaware of what it means to be on puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people are unaware of how puberty blockers are used for children who are not trans. Maybe kind of give a little history on that if you wouldn't mind. Puberty blockers, uh, at least when it comes to trans or non-binary youth, or those who want to explore their identities a little bit, or maybe feel like they're uncertain about whether they are boys or girls or non-binary, it literally just blocks the process of going through puberty and the things that we might typically associate with that, such as, you know, for people who are assigned male their voice might start dropping a little bit for people who are assigned female. They might start breast development, menstruation. So when you put a youth on something like a puberty blocker, it just stops that process. And it's it, like a pause button. It is a pause button. And the minute you take them off, they it's like you just... They go through puberty. It starts happening. Yeah. So... The medical community, I think it's been for mm, about 10, 15 years now, they have made recommendations that for trans youth, that puberty blockers are one possible treatment option that they can seek to give them more time. Now, there, there is controversy, I think, in the trans community about that idea that we should halt someone or slow down their, their process of transition. But I think that for a lot of folks in the medical community, as well as parents, if a kid is like 11, 12, 13, puberty blockers are one possibility to hit that pause button, give them a couple years, and then start them on 
hormones to begin transitioning if they want to. If they want to. I knew someone whose daughter had precocious puberty. Mm -hmm. And that means that she started going through puberty way too young, like under 10. They thought, looking back, that it actually had been what her grandmother had. And there's consequences for going through puberty Mm -hmm. really early. Mm -hmm. So she was put on puberty blockers. This is, you know, years and years and years ago. And had nothing to do really with trans or gender or any issues at all. It was it was a medical thing. And so that's what puberty blockers were developed for, I, th- I believe, is precocious puberty. When you disallow that type of, of medicine, you know, you run the risk of, of disallowing that for people who needed it for other reasons as well, you know, and so you're harming those kids for really what is just a pause. So what I don't know, and and I think you were starting to hit on it, is so if you go on a puberty blocker and you hit pause on it and you give the brain some time to mature and develop and more experience in life, and then they can make a more informed choice as they get older. If you wanted to take off the puberty blocker, you could then transit, you could, you, you could then mature in this, in, in the way you were going to, or you could go on, take off the puberty blocker and go on hormones to transition in, in a different direction. That's how it would work. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is how it works. Yep. Yeah. I, I think the medical community has felt a little bit more comfortable with the idea of putting someone on gender transitioning related hormones around the age of like 15 or 16. And so it just gives mm-hmm. everyone a couple of years. And, and also so that that kid does not start going through puberty. You know, there's a lot of trans folks that, you know, like in, in my generation, I'm, I just turned 40 and that was not a possibility when I was a kid. And going through puberty as a trans or non-binary person um, is incredibly difficult. And re- like, it's just, it's so challenging to like go through that milestone and also identify as a different gender and like all of the body changes that come with it. And knowing that in a couple of years, I'm just going to get on hormones anyway and like, you know, like like undo the process. But I think that there are a lot of trans and non-binary folks now who, if given the option, would have opted into something like puberty blockers instead of having to go through puberty and then start transitioning. Can I ask you a personal question? And we can edit this out if you don't want to answer it. That's fine. In that process for you, did going through puberty change how you felt about your gender and was that was there any a period of time where you questioned differently yeah so i'm i'm someone who's really open about my experiences going through puberty as someone who was assigned female at birth it was and i i know because you know like i have a lot of cisgender friends who also went through a similar process but like it is it was so awkward <laughs> and at the time like i didn't I didn't quite have the language for, you know, like, I'm a trans person, but I knew that there was something different about the way that I related to my body than any of the other people in my friend and community groups, um, you know. And so for a while, I I identified as a lesbian because I, you know, like, again, like trans and non-binary just wasn't really mm-hmm. in my consciousness, like in the in the movies. Sure. No, it it wasn't in it was not in the social conscious. It wasn't. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm similar. I'm a similar age, a little bit old, slightly older, but it just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't a concept that. Yeah, yeah. It was like you'd see people and they were cross. They called them cross dressers or transsexuals, but then the way I was taught was that those people were mm-hmm. heterosexual, but liked to wear women's clothing. I, I I don't even know where to put that in. If that was just made up completely, or if that's you know, I don't I don't really know. Because that's that's arcane now. We don't we don't talk about things that way. We don't see people that way. But but that's like the most that that I was aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I I think me too. Um, like I for a while sort of try to settle into that I was a ma- like that I was a like butch lesbian or like a you know just masculine. Um, yeah. Until I started meeting other trans people in like the early two thousands, and then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> you know, like it just it it all clicked. Like it just I don't know. There's I don't know how to explain it other than it clicked. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It, it really, in a way, because it's like you're trying to figure out something without the, you know, but there's there's no vocabulary to discuss it and to to describe you know that's it's been a pro it's evolution you're part of this evolutionary process um cutting cutting edge it's pretty cool yeah yeah i didn't meet uh i was probably like 2009 2008 before i met people that were transition in the midst of transitioning and the two um people that were assigned female at birth going through one probably would have been more described back then as a like a butch lesbian and the other was not at all very very feminine uh started very feminine and and uh wanted to the the one who started very you know what would be stereotypically gendered as feminine wanted to stay somewhere in the middle which was blew my mind in 2008 i was really i did not understand that was now we've come you know there's been so much it's like now i understand but i did not understand then and so i think it's fair to assume that other people are going through that type of a uh expansion in the in the ideas of gender now um and that it would be good if we if they and and we can all kind of give a little bit of um room for that i like that maybe they can come to a place where it's like it's more normalized and not so scary you know, mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. what does it matter? <laughs> like, why are you so upset about it? <laughs> like, just because it's, uh, it's just because it's different and change is different. So what? You know, live and let live. Is that not is that not OK? That's what's most disheartening about the legislation is that when you pass laws, um, you you close that off. You close off um, the ability to um let somebody just evolve, let things evolve. Yeah. I mean, I think also like for most trans and non-binary people, the decision, if they decide to go on any kind of medical intervention, it's about their selves, ourselves, their selves, whatever the right, you know, Um, but Deciding to get behind legislation blocking other people from accessing healthcare, like I don't know. I, I I mean, it just it really strikes me as like my transitioning, for example, does not affect 
a legislator. Right. And it, it affects me in really positive ways in the workplace. You know, like when I teach students, uh, college students, about gender and sex and sexuality and, you know, like it helps me be able to draw on both personal experience and research. But that's like in a, that's like, that's not what legislators are thinking of. And so I think it's, it is, it's disappointing and also really disheartening that their decisions in the name of protecting trans and non-binary people from themselves is really just creating more harm. But do you believe, I mean, let's be real. Do you think they are trying to protect the kids? Do you think that's genuine? I don't. No, I don't. (laughs) It sounds good. No, I don't. But, you know, it reminds me a lot of... um, it does sound good and it makes for really great sound bites that can then be leveraged. But it, it reminds me a lot of in the 1980s, you know, there was like this huge uproar in conservative circles about gay teachers were going to um, make all of the young children homosexuals, you know, and, and, right. it, and <laughs> it's just like, like creating, creating like a panic. Um, yes. And more, then, this moral panic. Yes. And so it's almost yeah. like if you just change out some of the words they were using in the 80s and then swap it with, you know, instead of like homosexual, it's now the trans person. I think it's a formula that they have noticed has worked. It has been successful. Mm-hmm. And so why change mm-hmm. the, the plan of action if it's already worked in the past? Right. And so that kind of gets to the bigger issue of like, well, what's behind all of this? It seems like a dog whistle to me. Are you familiar with dog whistle politics? I am, but do other listeners? Yeah. We've discussed it before, but we'll, we'll define it again. So it's, it's a signal to the base to rile them up. And it, this is an other, we want to other these people. And typically it, it was coined really in terms, you know, to talk about race politics, but it works just as well if you want to fire up the conservative base against other marginalized group. And trans you know they're the they're the smallest one one of the smallest minorities of the LGBTQ community, and I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. They they've sometimes felt that the the wider, um, more cis community has not stood up for them and has othered them, and and this is they're an easy target in a way, you know. And so that's as a public defender, we fight on the margin. And that's the way it's always been. These powerful groups come for the most marginalized, the, the, the most vulnerable. And it's the silence of the, of the other people who allow bad things to happen to them, right? So this is, why the, it's, this is why it's important for the American Medical Association to stand up and speak loud because once they get an inroad on trans people, they're going to push back on the next group. You think they're going to be happy with that? No, they're not. Sa- they're going to be satisfied with that. It's an authoritarian push. You know, I'm a, on a, I'm in a bit of a rant here. I'm just going to stay here for a second. It's a pushback on those in power and those that are allowed to be in power are Christian, white, wealthy men. And if you notice, like that's a huge group of people that don't fall into that category. So, you know, it's there's a there's a lot of like, in my opinion, again, based on just observation, everything that isn't this hyper masculine heterosexual is in essence feminine. It is because it's not the most masculine. 
So therefore, everybody else kind of falls into that category. And really, this big push is about who gets to be the ones to, you know, make the laws and dictate what the rest of us do. So it's really imperative for all of us. It's in our own, all of our interest to push back against this force. You know, what do you think? Do you think, am I off base in, in your mind or do you have a different perspective? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I have, you know, for a while, uh, so I, I moved to Iowa City in 2007 to begin my PhD in sociology. And, you know, when I first got to Iowa City, I was like, where are all the trans people and who are the doctors I can work with? And there weren't a lot um, and there wasn't a lot of community but eventually through like bringing pe- people together and you know doing a lot of workshops and just advocating for ourselves mm-hmm. things started to change but I, you know i remember this one really poignant conversation with the director of the gender center in Iowa City and she was like our center has almost always been about women's rights and i'm not saying i don't see how trans rights don't fit into that but I'd also want to be really careful and not, you know, conflate trans rights with women's rights. And I was like, you know what? I think that we need to start reframing how we think about women's rights or feminist movements and trans rights as like a gender justice movement. Absolutely. To me, they're the same. Yeah. This turf nonsense is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's a ridiculous waste of time. And I'm not fully Mm -hmm. convinced that Mm -hmm. it's that it's genuine, I, you know, to me, it's, it's almost like a, who was that woman who is like anti, anti-equal rights, Shafley or something like that. She was like the anti. Oh, Phyllis. Yeah, Phyllis, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's that saying, you know, you just get a token to come out and it confuses things. There's always somebody gleefully waiting to play that role. It's all the same. We, we, we rise and fall together. And I think also, you know, it, it can be a little tricky and I'm not excusing, you know, uh, like, mainstream um, lesbian and gay organizations, but I've always wondered why is it that trans folks are within the LGBTQ of the, you know, like it's it, like, I understand that there is a lot of crossover, but I sometimes wonder if it has done for those of us who are trans and non-binary, a little bit of a disservice because for so long it was easy for mainstream lesbian and gay, and I will add mostly white lesbian and gay people from really taking seriously the T and the LGBTQ. And so there's like so much push on like gay people being able to serve in the military and same, same gender marriage or same sex mm-hmm. marriage. Um, and all these issues that really, they are about gender based rights, but they're also about sexuality based rights. And so I think it can get really muddled and conf- like confusing. And for a long time, there were people, and perhaps there still are, who think of trans, trans people, I'm not sure if you've heard this before, but like, you know, the idea, the, the myth that trans people make gay and lesbian people look bad. You know, I've, I've heard a little bit of it. I don't understand it. I see that argument. I don't agree with it, but I see that argument a little bit more with like, you know, like no kink at pride, you know, where it's kind of just like, come on, really? Like we're trying to get people to accept this. Like, do we have to push that? Do we have to push even further? I don't know that that's the best argument, but it's like, okay, you know, but the trans, I don't, maybe I get to, maybe it's along the same lines. I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah, so I I think it is, and I and I think that I I have a friend who uses this phrase of like sometimes we eat each other, like we eat our own. Sure. And I have seen that playing out in lesbian and gay organizations who, or it's like a sacrificial lamb, like okay, fine, take this, you know, save us, save us, right? Or I, I worry about that. Yep, yep. Or or it's like you know the classic, we'll get to your stuff later. Oh sure. Um, and we like that has never worked. It didn't work for black women when black men were like, we'll get to your stuff later. It did, you know, like it just, that never actually works. And I think that we have so many examples of the group that's being told to wait your turn is often like incredible, like vulnerable and marginalized. And I just wonder if we stopped doing that and started centering marginalized people's needs and rights if social change itself would proceed like in a completely different fashion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it sounds good to me (laughs) 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 i I think we definitely should you know it's it's i think we're fighting the money and that's that's the that's the the hardest thing but you know but the money always fears the people and the change in young people and how young people view gender, sexuality, and identity, you know, they, they get it in a way that the older generations don't, you know, that's not, it's barely uncomfortable for them. I have two young boys, I think they're boys, we've been kind of like, well, they seem, they seem very boy to us, but you know, whatever, see how it goes. But you know, trying to educate them on, on gender and not being so gendered, I mean, being raised in the 80s, uh, late 70s and 80s, uh, it's so, it was so gendered. And I, there's like a little, there's like a little switch I have to like, I kind of go through a gender filter in my brain. Like, wait a minute, like, does this matter? No, it doesn't matter. But it's my, my three-year-old's favorite book is Mary Wears What She Wants. And it's about this incredible woman. I don't know if you know her. Mary Edwards Walker. She's from Oswego, New York. I'm from Syracuse originally. So uh, that's very close. It's a very close little town. And in the 1800s, um, she wanted to, she wanted to wear pants. She thought dresses are dumb. Like why? And so there's this big uproar in her community and her dad was like pretty progressive and he's just like this, the doctor in town. He's like, yeah, wear, wear the pants. And so it was this big thing. And then, and then she became, she became a doctor and she became a surgeon in uh, the civil war and she was a war prisoner and she was a spy and married to a man for a year, but I don't know. I always wore pants for their, always wore pants, you know, for the rest of her life. Was the only woman to get the Congressional Medal of Honor. And then they took it away, but she wouldn't send it back. And then they gave it back to her posthumously. I mean, just an amazing, an amazing human being. So my three-year-old is like laughing at uh, the idea of like a boy wearing a dress. And I was like, I mean, who cares? I said, what's the difference between a boy wearing a dress and Mary Walker wanting to wear pants? What's the difference? You know, so just trying to have those conversations um, mm. just to be like, whatever, mm. it doesn't matter. You know, things that like, wear what you Mary, if Mary can wear what she wants, you can wear what you want. So I don't want to wear a dress. So don't, so don't wear a dress. That's fine. You know, anyway, it's a big tirade. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I but I but I think it does like kind of, you know, fit back like the idea that people that we might assume are boys or masculine and how they should not be doing certain things because it might feminize them. I think that's linked back to what you were describing a couple of minutes ago, that there's like this, this idealized standard of what, you know, like 
hyper masculine like it's like reaching the the top of the pyramid and the top of that you know is someone who is white and able-bodied and cisgender and male and a man and masculine and affluent and christian you know like all of these things and anything that is with like outside of that is seen as either weird or different or feminine or a combination of like all those things Mm -hmm. you know you know, as you were saying before, like trans people in the military, it's that pushes all kinds of things. Like, yes, of course, you know, the don't say gay and all that, like strict sexuality, you know, but trans pushes all of those things, right? It's like that really challenges everything. And and maybe that's why it's it's um so difficult for people to embrace because it pushes all of those different areas of gender and sexuality sometimes it doesn't have to you know right so that's hard for people too it's like wait but huh how wait so you could be like why wouldn't you just want to be a lesbian why wouldn't you just want to you know it's like that's that's hard for people to understand to to separate gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. and anyway so you were going to say something oh yeah well I, i don't know why i'm still thinking about the military but i but i think it is like because Hmm. This might be a little bit of a circular thought, but I'll try to get there as quickly as possible. If we think about that, most of the representations of trans people in like mass media up until recently have usually depicted trans women who are very, I don't know if flamboyant is the right word, but like, you know, like they step into this role as trans women in the audience never drops the illusion of the person is anything other than a trans person. So if that's what most people have been socialized or brought up to really think of what it Mm -hmm. means to be a trans person, then the idea that your neighbor or your cousin or the person serving in the military, like anything that defies that image of what it means to look like a trans person and be a trans person, I think makes people really uncomfortable. Because what it does is it, it, I think it also asks people to reflect back on their own experiences. And at least for some people to ask, well, why do I identify as a woman? Like, that's a question I never would have thought of asking myself before. And so when we have examples of like, you know, really successful people in the military or you know, really successful business people, anything that defies those expectations, I think it creates a lot of discomfort, almost cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I think you are, people are experiencing cognitive dissonance and they don't, and that's uncomfortable and so they reject it without mm-hmm. really taking that time, taking a breath, again, asking themselves like, does this impact me in any way? <laughs> like, really? Like, other than like my momentary discomfort over over an idea that I'm that I'm unfamiliar with like does that impact me and like to to then say mm-hmm. I want to I want to pass legislation or support legislation that 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 legislates p- other people because their ex- their expression is uncomfortable to me it's it's that's a lot that's a lot that's a lot of uh entitlement yeah yeah it is it is and then also to kind of lean back on pseudoscience or interpretations of science as a way to justify, you know, like, I, like I've heard a lot of um, conservative legislators, for example, say, uh, well, it's biological and, you know, there's males and there's females and it's, you know, it's all biological. And 
And we have countless examples of sex variation and, you know, gender expression variation across many different historical time periods, and especially for sex variation across species. So it's it strikes me, you know, a, a lot of my work is working with students who study science and medicine, and so they are deeply entrenched in, like, biology and chemistry and physics. And we have these great conversations about what happens when we start restricting our understandings of sex and gender variation and keep and keep perpetuating false ideas of like this dichotomy that there's only two and there's always only been two. It erases a lot it erases a lot of knowledge that we have about how biology actually looks yeah. and how it manifests. Yeah, it's self-limiting. It is, but I also think it's interesting that, um, and maybe this is a side note, but these same legislators really only hold up scientific explanations when it suits them and then downplay science when it doesn't align with their political ideology. Yeah, so you've hit on something that is not limited to science. It is their general practice for how they support their quote-unquote arguments. Uh, that is, they they cherry pick uh, and then ignore things that don't that, that don't support that, and they and, you know and again hiding behind hiding motivations behind like we're protecting the children, you know. Meanwhile, it's like, but did they ask you to protect them? Like they're asking the opposite. Actually, they're asking you to leave them alone, and you're co- imposing all of this on them. I really want to thank you for your time and coming in to talk about this. Um, just kind of. I sort of want like your pulse on things like it just where are you like as a trans person as a person who studies trans medicine are you very worried are you interested you know where do you, where does things fall for you Yeah um I am I am worried I'm worried for trans people I, and like trans and non-binary people I do worry about trans youth I think that there I think there was a lot of excitement even a couple years ago that more and more kids were coming out as trans or non-binary and now I'm concerned that they have targets on them that is worrisome and we don't really have we don't have a great infrastructure to support them yeah and the little that we have is like being chipped away so I do worry about them I worry about medical students who maybe want to be supportive and feel like they can't um, once they become, you know, as like future physicians. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I lived in North Carolina when HB2 rolled out. I think it was one of at least the more well-known bathroom bills. And that felt like, I remember some people were like, it's not a huge deal. It's just one state. And it it felt at the time, and I think that it has kind of, it has bared out that that, that was a canary in the coal mine. And that's exactly right. I, so I, like, I do worry about, you know, first it was bathrooms and then locker rooms and then schools and then healthcare and, you know, and, and, and. But I do also have hope. So I don't think everything is like, you know, doom and gloom. I, I, I do have hope, and I think that the resilience um, and the ways that trans and non-binary people have 
had to figure out strategic workarounds to oppression. And that gives me hope uh, because I think we've always figured out ways to work around systems that are trying to like push us. Well, I mean, yeah, you're very, uh, very adept at that, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a, a well-developed skill set. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I, so I just went to this uh, DGA um, showing of a small light, which is about Meet Geis who uh, helped hide Anne Frank and her family back, you know, during the Holocaust. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, the, and her message is like, there, you, you could be a simple person and you can always turn on a light and help somebody. And I, so I think, you know, to the medical students and the people, you know, who are, who are living in gerrymandered red states who don't have the, because of the gerrymander, don't have to work with, the, don't have to consider their entire constituency and can ignore huge portions of the population that don't support these legislative moves that you then by in living in those places you and everywhere else you know you you have that is that is going to be people's call it's going to come to you what is and what do you do you know how do you respond to that you know i think there is hope but what's concerning is that like there's some places that are that rights are expanding and it and it's becoming these safe places and then other places are becoming more and more dangerous and so you you have this you know that that i don't like that I don't like places that are dangerous. You, everybody can't just migrate and leave. Mm-hmm. You know, you ha- we got to remember the people that are stuck in locations where and, and, and their rights. You know, I, I don't want places where there's rights for some people, but those uh, people living in another state wouldn't have that rights. That's that's not that's not where we want to move to. That is becomes our role. Like, well, hey, well, what what do we do when when mm-hmm. faced with it? You know, so uh, I thank you for for all that that you're doing to raise awareness in this and. Uh, go out and read Professor Schuster's book, Transmedicine. It was very informative. I learned a lot from reading it, and I really enjoyed it. So again, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This has been great. This episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside. Mixing and mastering is by Joe Thompson. Social media is by Jen Nicholson. You can find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod. You can find May It Displease the Court on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or you could drop us an email at court at gmail.com. We would love you to rate and review the show. It helps others find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. And you can check out the show notes to learn more about this topic and also about Mr. Simmons' life. Had to cry, paid more than